You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Eddie Sheffield Jr. at www.eddysheffield.com. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. The Invisible Death, a complete novelette by Victor Rousseau. Chapter 1, Out of the Hangman's Hands. You speak, said Von Kettler, jeering, as if you really believed that you had the power of life and death over me. With night rays and darkness antidote, America strikes back at the terrific and destructive invisible empire. The superintendent of the penitentiary frowned, yet there was something of perplexity in the look he gave the prisoner. Von Kettler, I think it is time that you drop this absurd pose of yours, he said. In view of the fact that you are scheduled to die by hanging at eight o'clock tomorrow night, your life and death are in your own hands. Von Kettler bowed ironically, standing in the superintendent's presence in the uniform of the condemned cell collarless, bareheaded, yet he seemed to dominate the other by a certain poise, breeding, nonchalance. Your life is offered you in consideration of your making a complete written confession of the whole ramifications of the plot against the federal government, the superintendent continued. Rather a confession of weakness, my dear superintendent, jeered the prisoner. Oh, don't worry about that. The government has unraveled a good deal of the conspiracy. It knows that you and your international associates are planning to strike at civilized government throughout the world in the effort to restore the days of autocracy. It knows you are planning a world federation of states based on the principles of absolutism and aristocracy. It is aware of the immense financial resources behind the movement. Also that you have obtained the use of certain scientific discoveries which you believe will aid in your schemes. I was wondering, jeered the prisoner, how soon you were coming to that. They didn't help you in your murderous scheme, the superintendent thundered. You were found in the war office by the night watchman, rifling a safe of valuable documents. You shot him with a pistol equipped with a silencer. You shot down two more who, hearing his cries, rushed to his aid. And you attempted to stroll out of the building, apparently under the belief that you possessed mysterious power which would afford you security. A little lapse of judgment, such as may happen, with the best laid plans, smiled von Kettler. No, superintendent, I'll be franker with you than that. My capture was designed. It was decided to give the government an object lesson in our power. It was resolved that I should permit myself to be captured in order to demonstrate that you cannot hang me, that I have merely to open the door of my cell, the gates of this penitentiary, and walk out to freedom. Have you quite finished, rasped the superintendent. At your disposal, smiled the other. Here's your last chance, von Kettler. Your persistence in this absurd claim has actually shaken the expressed conviction of some of the medical examiners that you are saying. If you will make that complete written confession that the government asks of you, I pledge you that you shall be declared insane tonight and sent to the sanitarium from which you will be permitted to escape as soon as this affair is blown over. The United States government has sunk pretty low to involve itself in a deal of this character, don't you think, my dear superintendent? jeered von Kettler. The government is prepared to act as it thinks best in the interests of humanity. It knows that the death of one wretched murderer such as yourself is not worth the lives of thousands of innocent men. And there, smiled von Kettler, without abating an atom of his nonchalance, there, my dear superintendent, you hit the nail on the head. Only, instead of thousands, you might have said millions. Von Kettler's aspect changed. Suddenly his eyes blazed, his voice shook with excitement. His face was the face of a fanatic, of a prophet. Yes, millions, superintendent, he thundered. It is a holy cause that inspires us. We know that it is our sacred mission to save the world from the drabness of modern democracy. The people, always the people. Bah! Who are the lives of these swarming millions worth when compared with a Caesar, a Napoleon, an Alexander, a Charlemagne? Nothing can stop us or defeat us. 
And you, with your confession of defeat, your petty bargaining, I'll laugh at you. You'll laugh on the gallows tomorrow night, the superintendent shouted. Again, von Kettler was the calm, superior, arrogant prisoner of before. I shall never stand on the gallows trap, my dear superintendent, as I have told you many times, he replied. And since we have reached what diplomacy calls a deadlock, permit me to return to my cell. The superintendent pressed a button on his desk. The guards, who had been waiting outside the office, entered hastily. Take this man back, he commanded, and von Kettler, head held high and smiling, left the room between them. The superintendent pressed another button, and his assistant entered, a rugged, red-haired man of forty, Anstruther, familiarly known as Bull Anstruther, the man who had, in three weeks, reduced the penitentiary from a place of undisciplined chaos to a model of law and order. Anstruther knew nothing of the superintendent's offer to von Kettler, but he knew that the latter had powerful friends outside. Anstruther, I'm worried about von Kettler, said the superintendent. He actually laughed at me when I spoke of the possibility of another medical examination. He seemed confident that he could not be hanged, swore that he will never stand on the gallows trap. How about your precautions for tomorrow night? We've taken all possible precautions, answered Anstruther. Special armed guards have been posted at every entrance to the building. Detectives are patrolling all streets leading up to it. Every car that passes is being scrutinized, its plate numbers taken and forwarded to the motor bureau. There's no chance of even an attempt at rescue, literally none. He's insane, said the superintendent with conviction, and the words filled him with new confidence. It had been less von Kettler's statements than the man's cool confidence and arrogant superiority that had made him doubt. But he's not too insane to have known what he was doing. He'll hang. He certainly will, replied Anstruther. He's just a big bluff, sir. Have him searched rigorously again tomorrow morning, and his cell too. Every inch of it, Anstruther. And don't relax an iota of your precautions. I'll be glad when it's all over. He proceeded to hold a long-distance conversation with Washington over a special wire. In his cell, von Kettler could be seen reading a book. It was Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, that compendium of aristocratic insolence that once took the world by storm, until the author's mentality was revealed by his commitment to a madhouse. Von Kettler read till midnight, closely observed by the guard at the trap, then laid the word aside with a yawn, lay down on his cot, and appeared to fall instantly asleep. Dawn broke. Von Kettler rose, breakfasted, smoked the perfecto that came with his ham and eggs, resumed his book. At ten o'clock, Bull Anstruther came with a guard and stripped him to the skin, examining every inch of his prison garments. The bedding followed. The cell was gone over microscopically. Von Kettler, permitted to dress again, smiled ironically. That smile stirred Anstruther's gall. We know you're just a big bluff, Von Kettler, snarled the big man. Don't think you've got us going. We're just taking the usual precautions, that's all. So unnecessary, smiled Von Kettler. Tonight I shall dine at the Ambassador Grill. Watch for me there. I'll leave a memento. Anstruther went out, choking. Early in the afternoon, two guards came for Von Kettler. Your sister's come to say goodbye to you, he was told, as he was taken to the visitor's cell. This was a large and fairly comfortable cell in a corridor leading off the death house, designed to impress visitors with the belief that it was the condemned man's permanent abode, and, by a sort of convention, it was understood that prisoners were not to disabuse their visitors' minds of the idea. The convention had been honorably kept. The visitors' approach was checked by a grill, with a two-yard space between it and the bars of the cell. Within this space, a guard was seated. It was his duty to see that nothing passed. As soon as von Kettler had been temporarily established in his new quarters, a pretty, fair-haired young woman came along the corridor, conducted by the superintendent himself. She walked with dignity. Her bearing was proud. She smiled at her brother through the grill, and there was no trace of weeping about her eyes. 
She bowed with pretty formality, and von Kettler saluted her with an airy wave of the hand. Then they began to speak, and the German guard who had been selected for the purpose of interpreting to the superintendent afterward was baffled. It was not German, neither was it French, Italian, nor any of the Romance languages. As a matter of fact, it was Hungarian. Not until the half hour was up did they lapse into English, and all the while they might have been conversing on art, literature, or sport. There was no hint of tragedy in this last meeting. "'Good-bye, Rudy,' smiled his sister. "'I'll see you soon.' "'Tonight or tomorrow,' replied von Kettler indifferently. The girl blew him a kiss. She seemed to detach it from her mouth and extend it through the grill with a graceful gesture of the hand, and von Kettler caught it with a romantic wave of the fingers and strained it to his heart. There was only one of those queer foreign ways. Nothing was passed. The alert guard, sitting under the electric light, was sure of that. They searched von Kettler again after he was back in the death house. The other cells were empty, and three of them detectives were placed, and the yard beyond the hangman was experimenting with the trap. He himself was under close observation. Nothing was being left to chance. At seven o'clock, two men collided in the death house entrance. One was a guard carrying von Kettler's last meal on a tray. He had demanded Perigord truffles and pâté de foie gras, cold lobster, endive salad, and near beer, and he had got them. The other was the chaplain, in a state of visible agitation. If he was an atheist and mocked at me, it wouldn't be so bad, the good man declared. I've had plenty of that kind. But he says he's not going to be hanged. He's mad, mad as a March hare. The government has no right to send an insane man to the gallows. I'll bluff, my dear Mr. Wright, answered the superintendent when the chaplain voiced his protest. He thinks he can get away with it. The commission was pronounced him sane, and he must pay the penalty of his crime. By that mysterious process of telegraphy that exists in all penal institutions, von Kettler's boast that he would beat the hangman had become the common information of the inmates. Bets were being laid, and the odds against von Kettler ranged from ten to fifteen to one. It was generally agreed, however, that von Kettler would die game to the last. "'You all ready, Mr. Squires?' the prowling superintendent asked the hangman. "'Everything's okay, sir.' The superintendent glanced at the group of newspaper men gathered about the gallows. They, too, had heard of the prisoner's boast. One of them asked him a question. He silenced him with an angry look. The prisoner is in his cell and will be let out in ten minutes. You shall see for yourselves how much truth there is in this absurdity, he said. He looked at his watch. It lacked five minutes of eight. The preparations for an execution have been reduced almost to a formula. One minute in the cell, twenty seconds to the trap, forty seconds for the hangman to complete his arrangements, two minutes, and then the thud of the false floor. Four minutes of eight. The little group had fallen silent. The hangman furtively took a drink from his hip pocket flask. Three minutes. The superintendent walked back to the door of the death house and nodded to the guard. Bring him out quick, he said. The guard shot the bolt of von Kettler's cell. The superintendent saw him enter, heard a loud exclamation, and hurried to his side. One glance told him that the prisoner had made good his boast. Von Kettler's cell was empty. Chapter 2. Conference Captain Richard Rennell of the U.S. Air Service, but temporarily detached to intelligence, thought that Fredegon Valmy had never looked so lovely as when he helped her out of the cockpit. Her dark hair fell in disorder over her flushed cheeks, and her eyes were sparkling with pleasure. A thousand thanks, Monsieur Renelles, she said, in her low voice with its slight foreign intonation. Never have I enjoyed a ride more than today, and I shall see you at Miss Wansley's ball tonight. I hope so, if I'm not wanted at headquarters, answered Dick, looking at the girl in undisguised admiration. Ah, that headquarters of yours. It claims so much of your time, she pouted. But these are times when the intelligence service demands much of its men, is it not so? Who told you I was attached to intelligence, demanded Dick bluntly. She laughed mockingly. Do you think that is not known all over Washington, she asked. 
It is strange that intelligence should act like the, the ostrich, who buries his head in the sand and thinks that no one sees him because it is hidden. Dick looked at the girl in perplexity. During the past month he had completely lost his head and heart over her, and he was trying to view her with the dispassionate judgment that his position demanded. As the niece of the Slovakian ambassador, Mademoiselle Valmy had the entry to Washington society. The ambassador was away on leave, and she had appeared during his absence, but she had been accepted unquestionably at the embassy, where she had taken up her quarters, explaining, as the ambassador confirmed by cable, that she had sailed under a misconception as to the date of his leave. Brunette, beautiful, charming, she had a score of hearts to play with, and yet Dick flattered himself that he stood first. Perhaps the other did, too. Of course, the girl went on, with the invisible emperor threatening organized society, you gentlemen find yourselves extremely busy. Well, let us hope that you locate him and bring him to book. Sometimes, said Dick slowly, I almost think that you know something about the invisible emperor. Again, she laughed merrily. Now, if you had said that my sympathies were with the invisible emperor, I might have been surprised into an acknowledgment, she answered. After all, he does stand for that aristocracy which has disappeared from the modern world, does he not? For refinement of manners, for beauty of life, for all those things men used to prize. Likewise, for the existence of the vast body of the nation in ignorance and poverty, in filth and squalor, answered Dick. No, my sympathies are with law and order and democracy, and your invisible emperor and his crowd are simply a gang of thieves and hold-up men. Be careful. A warning fire burned in the girl's eyes. At least it is known that the emperor's ears are long. So are a jackasses, retorted Dick. He was sorry next moment, for the girl received his answer in icy silence. In his car, which conveyed them from the tarmac to the embassy, she received all his overtures in the same silence. A frigid little bow was her farewell to him, while Dick, struggling between resentment and humiliation, sat dumb and wretched at the wheel. Yet the idea that Fredegon Valmy had any knowledge of the conspiracy or its leaders never entered Dick's head. He was only miserable that he had offended her, and he would have done anything to have straightened out the trouble. It seemed impossible that in the year 1940 the peace of the civilized world could be threatened by an international conspiracy bent on restoring absolutism, and yet each day showed more clearly the immense ramifications of the plot. Each day, too, brought home to the investigating governments more clearly the fact that things that they had discovered were few in number in comparison with those that they had not. The headquarters of the conspirators had never been discovered, and it was suspected that the powerful mind behind them was intentionally leading the investigators along false trails. The conspiracy was worldwide. It had been behind the revolution that had recreated an absolutist monarchy in Spain. It had plunged Italy into civil war. It had thrown England into the convulsions of a succession of general strikes, using the communist movement as a cloak for its activities. But nobody dreamed that America could become a fertile field for its insidious propaganda, Yet it was behind the millions of adherents of the so-called Freeman's Party, clamoring for the destruction of the Constitution. Upon the anarchy that would follow, the absolutist regime was to be erected. Already the mysterious powers had struck. Departments of State had been entered and important papers abstracted. The Germania had mysteriously disappeared in mid-Atlantic, and a shipping panic had ensued. There were tales of mysterious figures materializing out of nothingness. It was known that the conspirators were in possession of certain chemical and electrical devices which they hoped to achieve their ends. The superintendent of the penitentiary had had in his pocket an authorization to stop the execution of Von Kettler after he stood on the trap. Dead, he would be a mere mark of vengeance. Alive, he might be persuaded to furnish some clue to the headquarters of the miscreants. And behind the conspirators loomed the unknown figure that signed itself the Invisible Emperor, in the communications that poured into the White House and to the rulers of other nations. 
and the threats that were materializing with stunning swiftness. Who was he? Rumor said that a former European ruler had not died as was supposed, that a coffin weighted with lead had been buried, and that he himself in his old age had gone forth to a mad scheme of world conquest with a body of his nobles. It had been practically a state of war since the shipment of gold, guarded by a detachment of police, had been stolen in broad daylight outside Baltimore, the police clubbed and killed by invisible assailants, as they claimed. The press was under censorship, troops under arms, and it was reported that the fleet was mobilizing. In the midst of it all, Washington shopped, danced, feasted, flirted like a swarm of mayflies over a treacherous stream. Intelligence was alert. As Dick started to drive away from the Slovakian embassy, a man stepped quickly to the side of the car and thrust an envelope into his hand. Dick opened it quickly. He was wanted by Colonel Stopford at once, not at the camouflage headquarters at the War Department, but at the real headquarters where no papers were kept but weighty decisions were made, and to that devious course the government had already been driven. Dick parked his car in a side street. It would have been under espionage in any of the official parking places, and set off at a smart walk toward his destination. Nobody would have guessed from the appearance of the streets that a national calamity was impending. The shopping crowds were swarming along the sidewalks. Cars tailed each other through the streets. Only a detachment of soldiers on the White House lawn lent a touch of the marshal to the scene. The building which Dick entered was an ordinary ten-story one in the business section. The various legal firms and commercial concerns that occupied it would have been greatly surprised to have known the identity of the Ira T. Graves importer, whose name appeared in modest letters upon the opaque glass door on the seventh floor. Inside, a flapper stenographer, actually one of the most trusted members of the intelligence's staff, asked Dick's name, which she knew perfectly well. Not a smile or a flicker of an eyelid betrayed the fact. Mr. Rennell, said Dick, with equal gravity. The girl passed into an inner room, and a buzzer sounded. In a few moments, the girl came back. Mr. Graves will be here in a few minutes, Mr. Rennell, if you'll kindly wait in his office, she said. Dick thanked her and walked through into the empty office. He waited there till the girl had closed the door behind him, then went out by another door and found himself again in the corridor. Opposite him was a door with the words, Entrance 769, and a hand pointing down the corridor toward the intelligence service had established another perfectly innocent front. Dick tapped lightly at this door, and a key turned in the lock. The man who stepped quickly back was one of the heads of the civil service. The man at the flat-top desk was Colonel Stopford. The man on a chair beside him was one of the heads of the police force. The colonel, a big elderly man, dressed in a gray sack suit, checked Dick's commencing salutation. Never mind etiquette, Rennell, he said. Sit down. You've heard about the man von Kettler's escape last night, of course? Yes, sir. It's known, then. We can't keep things dark. He vanished from his cell in the death house three minutes before the time appointed for his execution, though, as a matter of fact, he wasn't going to be hanged. Apparently, he walked through the walls. There's a sequel to it, Rennell. It seems he had told the assistant superintendent, a man named Anstruther, that he'd meet him at a restaurant in town that night. He promised to leave him a memento. Anstruther happened to remember this boast of von Kettler's, and he surrounded the restaurant with armed detectives, on the chance that the fellow would show up. Rennell, von Kettler was there. He went to this restaurant, sir? He walked in just before the place was surrounded, engaged a table, and ordered a sumptuous meal. He told the waiter his name, said he expected a friend to join him, walked into the washroom, and vanished. Two minutes later, Anstruther and his men were on the job. Von Kettler never came out of the washroom, so far as anybody knows. In the midst of the hue and cry, somebody pointed to the table that Von Kettler had engaged. There was a $20 bill upon it and a scrap of paper reading, I've kept my word, Von K. Colonel Stopford looked at Dick fixedly. 
Renell, we may be fools, he said, but we realize what we're up against. It's a big thing, and we're going to need all our fighting grit to overcome it. You're one of the four men we're depending on. We're counting on you because of your record, and because of your degree in science at Heidelberg. The President wishes you to take charge of the whole Eastern Intelligence District, covering the entire southeastern seaboard of the United States. You are to have complete freedom of action, and all civil, military, and naval officials have received instructions to cooperate with you. There goes Mrs. Wansley's ball, thought Dick, but he said nothing. We're not the hunters, Dick Rennell, went on Colonel Stopford. We're hiding under cover, and I'm counting on you to turn the tables. They even know my office is here. I had a long-distance call from Savannah this morning in mocking vain. They advised me to have the White House watched tonight. I warned the President, and we posted guards all round it. They held the wire while you called up the president, asked Dick. Damn it, no. They called me up from Scranton the instant he'd finished speaking. They have the power of the devil, Rennell, with that infernal invisibility invention of theirs. Rennell, we're fighting unknown forces. Who this invisible emperor is, we don't even know. But one thing we've found out, he has his headquarters somewhere in your district, somewhere along the South Atlantic seaboard. The greater part of his activities emanate from there, but we're fighting in the dark. The clue, the master clue that will enable us to locate him, that's what we lack. The sun had set. It was beginning to grow dark. Colonel Stopford switched on the electric lamp beside his desk. What have you to say, Rennell? he asked, and Dick was aware that the two other men were regarding him attentively. It's evident, said Dick, that von Kettler possessed this means of invisibility in his cell and wasn't detected. He simply slipped out when the guard came to fetch him. Invisibility? Yes, but invisible's not the same thing as transparent, cried Stopford. These folks have operated in broad daylight. They're transparent, damn them. Not even a shadow. You know what I mean, Rennell, what I'm thinking of. That crazy man you were in touch with six months ago who prophesied this. We turned him down. He showed me a watch and said the salvation of the world was inside the case. I thought him insane. You mean Luke Evans, sir. That watch was his pocket model. He went off in a huff, saying the time would come when we'd want him and not be able to find him. But, damn him, he wanted to produce universal darkness or some such nonsense, Rennell, and I told him that we wanted light, not darkness. It wasn't exactly that, sir. Colonel Stopford was a man of the old school. He had been an artillery officer in the Great War and was characteristically impatient of new notions. Dick began carefully. You remember, sir, old Evans claimed to have been the inventor of that shadow-breaking device that was stolen from him and sold in England. To a moving picture company, snorted Stopford. Asked him what moving pictures had to do with war. Evans was convinced that the invention could be applied to war. He claimed that it made the modern methods of military camouflage out of date completely. He said that by destroying shadows, one could produce invisibility, since visibility consists in the refraction of wavelengths by material objects. When they stole his invention, he foresaw that it would be used in war. He set to work to nullify his own invention. He told me that he had unintentionally given to the enemies of the United States a means of bringing us to our knees, since he's believed that British Motion Picture Company was actually a subsidiary of Krupp's. He worked out a method of counteracting it. You must get him, Rennell. Even if it's all nonsense, we can't afford to let any chance go. If Evans' invention will counteract this damned invisibility business... The telephone on the colonel's desk rang. He picked it up, and his face assumed an expression of incredulity. He looked about him like a man bewildered. He beckoned to the police official who hurried to his side and thrust the receiver into his hand. The official listened. All right, he said. He turned to Dick and the civil service representative. Gentlemen, he said, the president has disappeared from his office in the White House, and there are grave fears that he has been kidnapped. End of section three. Recording by Eddie Sheffield, Jr. at www.eddysheffield.com.